Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa with Dr. Rory Merritt, and here's what we've got for you today. Online educational resources, particularly FOAM or FOMED, also known as Free Open Access Medical Education Resources, are hyper popular these days among both emergency medicine trainees and attendings. They're up to date, easily accessible, and they help circulate new research and narrow that knowledge translation window. This podcast, after all, is FOAM, hosted by an academic-affiliated FOAM blog at Brown. But any frequent visitor of the FOAM world knows that quality can vary from site to site, and editorial processes, if any, can be opaque. The development of tools to guide clinicians and learners in the selection and use of blogs and podcasts is a growing area of academic interest, and today we're happy to have our guest, Arden Azim, discuss her recent AEM education and training article, Editorial Processes in Free Open Access Medical Educational Resources. Arden is a medical student at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, going into her final year with research interests in medical education and knowledge translation. She, along with co-authors Dr. Jennifer Beck-Esme and Dr. Teresa Chan, sought to investigate editorial processes in online EM resources and whether they can be reliably integrated into a critical appraisal tool. She's being interviewed by Dr. Rory Merritt, a medical education research fellow at Brown Emergency Medicine. Don't forget to hit the full text of this article, available open access on our blog at brownemblog.com. Arden, it's a pleasure to meet you. Congratulations on your first journal article. Thanks so much. Tell us about where you're calling in from. Yeah, so I'm a medical student at McMaster um, in Hamilton, Ontario, going into my final year, actually away right now, one elective at Queen's University. And I hear you're interested in going to emergency medicine. Is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely um, the plan. I've loved emergency since when I started med school. All right, program directors, you heard her here first, so pay attention. Arden, I'm really happy to talk to you today about your paper. I thought it really did an excellent job highlighting many of the challenges in appraising online educational resources, commonly referred to as FOAM. I'm hoping you can tell our audience just a little bit of background about one tool your team highlighted, the metric tool, to do just that. Um, yeah, so the uh, metric tools were um, developed by a group of eMERGE Med researchers led by Dr. Brent Toma who's in Saskatchewan. And this was in response to kind of this huge growth in online med ed resources in recent years. So this team basically conducted a series of studies and they were trying to learn more about how to appraise the quality of online resources like blogs, podcasts. And our senior author, Dr. Teresa Chan, is actually a founding co-investigator of that team. And Mm. she actually led the effort to create the metric scores, which is pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. So earlier studies in like this body of metric body of research, they found that gestalt assessment of online resource quality was pretty inconsistent for learners in medicine. But even more interestingly, it's also pretty inconsistent for experienced educators. Hmm. So this these findings really highlighted that we need better tools to critically appraise these online resources. You know, like we're taught how to critically appraise more traditional resources like research and med school and residency. But the reality is that now the majority of med students, residents, even clinicians are using online resources in education, but don't really know how to critically appraise them. 
So then they did a systematic review and Delphi study and identified a series of quality indicators for blogs and podcasts. And then from that, they created the metric eight and the metric five scoring tools. And am I correct in thinking that one of the uh, areas of the metric eight looks at is the editorial process? Yeah, so um, the metric eight has um, some additional elements beyond the metric five, and two of these are actually related to editorial process. So one is, um, is there an editorial process? And the other is, is it actually described? And, and help me understand as sort of a lay person, why editorial process is so critical. Yeah, so basically editorial process, if you know about editorial process, you can understand all the steps that it takes to create and revise a final published product. So it'll tell you who's involved in creating the resource, who revised it, what their qualifications are, and then what kind of internal and external review there was. So is it reviewed before publication? Are the reviewers members of the site or, or experts brought in to review? And it's pretty critical because, as just just mentioned, it's one of the quality indicators for um, online resources in the metric study series, and it's actually part of the metric eight tool. And beyond that, it editorial process helps readers assess credibility and accuracy. It helps you build a degree of trust in the material. So for more traditional resources like journal articles and textbooks, their credibility has kind of been established by a clear understanding of what their editorial process looks like. We know there's peer review. We know there's expert review. So given how popular now online resources are in MedEd, it's pretty critical to understand what editorial process looks for it. It'll help educators and trainees um, kind of discern the wheat from the chaff. It'll help pick through the huge amounts of online MedEd resources and kind of select for ones that have been subjected to a more rigorous editorial process. Thank you for clarifying a little bit more about what editorial process means and why it's so important. Now, what were the main goals of the research that you focused on? Yeah, so when we started this project, there was no pre-existing research into what editorial process actually looked like in online um, medical resources. Um, so our main goal was actually to evaluate the landscape of editorial process to see what kinds of editorial processes existed, how formalized they were, and also how transparent um, online educational resources are about their editorial process. And then also because um, editorial process disclosure and description were two of the elements on the metric tool, we also wanted to look at the interreader reliability of actually identifying whether a site discloses their editorial process and also whether they describe it. And this just helps determine the feasibility of actually having these elements in the tool. So one of the main takeaways I had from your paper is that the majority of online educational resources didn't describe their editorial processes. So what does that mean for users of Foam? Yeah, so that was a, a big finding for us. And it was really that it was about 10 or 11% of online educational resources actually describe their editorial process. This is a really small percentage. So the um, because we know the gestalt ratings of these resources is pretty inconsistent and having also untrained end users will just leave a lot of people confused and lost in how to actually navigate this massive sea of foam. Um, not having transparency about editorial process creates challenges for users. It'll interfere with their ability to discern exactly how resources are created and what degree of editorial oversight exists. And this will be really challenging for more junior learners like medical students who may actually really struggle to identify when content is inaccurate or hasn't been reviewed. And, you know, we know that not all resources are created with the same level of review and the same intent. Some are intended to be personal opinion and others are products of a really large academic site. And there's value to be gained from both types, but it's really important for readers to actually be able to see this distinction to help them decide how to interpret the content. You know, we think that, um, as we in our paper, users of Foam would really benefit from having greater transparency about editorial process. This will help educators select resources because now these resources are being integrated into um, undergrad and postgrad medical curriculum. And it'll also help learners and clinicians who are looking to apply knowledge to their own practice. 
one of my favorite quotes from your paper got had to do with the idea of balance. You, you, your team said that quote the balance between ensuring adequate editorial oversight and maintaining the unique benefits of open online educational resources, end quote, in my view, was particularly important. So how does how do online writers and content providers strike that balance? And, you know, it's it's a fine line because one of the biggest benefits of online educational resources, it's a shorter timeline of publication than traditional scholarly journals. And this really better reflects how quickly evidence actually changes in medicine. And I think emphasizing a more traditional editorial approach would really interfere with this, which is this big benefit. And some of the um, creators in the um, phone movement have developed really innovative approaches to editorial process that actually do a great job of balancing oversight with protecting the unique characteristics of foam and what make this online resources so great. And one of an example of an approach that I think does a great job of balancing editorial oversight and um, kind of the benefits of online resources was developed by the um, Academic Life and Emergency Medicine blog, more commonly known as LEM. And they mm-hmm. have... Um, pre-publication peer review through their editorial board, but they also recruit experts in the topic um, for formal post-publication peer review. And they make the peer review comments accessible in the final product, which is great because it's total transparency about the editorial process. And then beyond this, there's also crowdsourced post-publication peer review through comments, through social media. And you know this approach really fosters transparency and flexibility, um, but it's still quicker and more responsive than a traditional peer review. Um, I will say, though, that this approach is great for larger sites, but a lot of um, online resources are really single author operations, and it wouldn't be feasible for them to support a formal multi-editor review process. And this is where post-publication peer review is really crucial to maintaining that balance of editorial oversight. And I think this speaks to the importance of what we need to do as a community if we actually want to support people who are participating and producing online educational resources, because post-publication peer review doesn't come from nowhere. Someone actually has to read the material and write the comments and take the time to really engage. So I think in the end, fostering an engaged, collaborative community of readers and users is what's really going to be important to maintaining good editorial oversight for um, online resources. Well, Arden, I really thank you for spending time with us and for sharing your research. As we conclude, do you have any advice for other students, residents, fellows out there aspiring to be first authors in great journals? Yeah, so my advice would be, you know, first of all, like everyone says, find a project that you're actually genuinely interested in that you really care about. And then if authorship is the goal, find a project that's realistic in terms of scale and timelines. So the scale of the project will obviously vary depending on your specific goals. But I'd say especially for a more junior researcher and learner looking at um, hoping for a first authorship, finding a project that's clearly focused on a single topic is good, one that relies less on external factors. So just keeping in mind that needing things like ethics approvals, recruiting a lot of participants, big study teams, while these are, um, you know, part of larger projects, you can sometimes delay um, your project and you may have a better likelihood of publication and can still develop the research and writing skills you need if you pick something of a smaller scale. And then beyond that, I think mentorship is almost the most important thing. Your mentor matters just as much, if not more, as the project, especially if you're near to research. I was really fortunate to find a fantastic mentor in Dr. Chan, and you know, her guidance and coaching was really crucial to navigating this process. And um, finding the right mentor, I think, from my experience, it's not just as simple as finding someone who's well-known in your field of interest. You also want to look for a mentor and hope to find one whose experience, work, and expectations for your role match up with your goals and who's also available and willing not just to put the time into the research, but also into the mentorship relationship. And I think if your goal is authorship, you should be clear about this pretty early on when you're looking for a research mentor. Like have a frank conversation on both sides about your goals, your expectations, and just remember, you know, be respectful of your mentor's time and reliable. Well, that's excellent, excellent advice. 
thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to hear about your next project. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training Podcast. Read the full text of this article at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. We're also in the podcast section of the SAEM website. Today's music is by Scott Holmes and Poddington Bear. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.